we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through and seeing a lot of different episodes and events that Jesus did. Today we're going to be taking a little bit of a larger section, and I realize that this is, this is a big unit, um, but I think that it fits together very well. And so we are going to take a larger portion and uh, try and move through it. I called it, The Servant Stills the Storms. Now, in reality, there's one storm in this, in this episode, and that's the, the storm out on the sea. But in modern vernacular, we often refer to the storms and trials and difficulties and things of life as storms in our life. So I, I found it fitting that as we look at this, we're going to find an individual with internal storms, with, with challenges and, and things that he's facing directly, as well as we see an external storm. And, you know, in life, we run into those kinds of things. Like I said, it's just a figure of speech that we have, but the storms of life, how do we deal with those? Who is able to handle those? What, what possible answers are there? Well, we're going to be looking at this section. We're going to find that Jesus has authority over all of these storms that come up. This section is really going to focus in on the authority of Christ. Now, that is a main uh, point, main focus for all of Mark. If you haven't noticed it yet, we're going to do a little quick review and identify some of those things that Jesus has authority over. Throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, he is emphasizing the authority of Christ. But in this one in particular, that becomes very, very abundantly clear that Jesus is the one who is in charge. So, quick review. What are some of the things that we have seen Jesus have authority over so far? We're, we're going to get to the waves. That, that's today's. Demons? Diseases? Do we need to go back to Mark chapter 1 and start over again? Or I'm just kidding. What, what are some of the ways in which he shows his authority? In, the, in his healings, okay? There's even one thing that it specifically says people were surprised because of his authority in his teaching. Okay, so if, if you're one who takes notes, I've got a few references real quick. Back in chapter 1, we saw four things, four ways in which his authority was displayed. First of all, in the fact that he had disciples, he had followers, he had individuals. That was in chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. There were followers of Jesus, and he had authority over them. In verse 22 of chapter 1, we saw that he had authority in his teaching. He didn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. He taught differently. Uh, in verses 23 through 26, and also in verse 34 and 39 of chapter 1, we saw that he had authority over demons. Uh, a demon would, would be in that area and he would cast it out. And it, it wasn't a battle, it wasn't a fight, he just spoke and they were driven out. And we also saw, as was mentioned, he had authority over diseases. That's in verses 30, 31, 34, 40, 41. Obviously, chapter 1 in and of itself declares Jesus' authority in some pretty amazing ways. Then we get to chapter 2. And we have a major, major confrontation, an example, in which, starting off in, in verse 5, we see that Jesus has authority over sin. 
Now you recall that one. That's where they, they tear open the roof and they lower a man down. And, and a lot of people focus on the fact that Jesus heals a, a paralytic, which is, uh, don't get me wrong, that is amazing. But the first thing that Jesus addresses in that, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is letting it be known that he has authority over sin. Spiritual healing, namely sin, is the main issue, not the physical in that episode. Again, we see that he has more disciples in chapter 2, verse 14. And then the rest of chapter 2 really deals with his authority over the Sabbath laws, or I, I'd call it more the Sabbath rules, that he is the lawgiver. And, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the scribes had all come up with all of these extra rules and extra guidelines and things that they had to do with the Sabbath, and Jesus has authority over all of that, so over religious observance. We get to chapter 3, and there's, there's more of the same, but in chapter 3, the one that I want to highlight comes up in chapter 3, verses 22 through 29, that Jesus has authority even over Satan, Satan himself. There's not this conflict between two equal but opposites. It is completely that Jesus is in, in control and Satan is not. Well, most of chapter 4 has dealt with his teachings, specifically how he teaches in parables. It's, it has only given us a sampling of the various ones. In Scripture, there's over 30 different parables that are recorded, as well as a lot of other uh, dialogue and speaking and teaching that Jesus does. Um, <clears throat> but all of that was, in, in chapter 4, was to show us a sampling sufficient to point out what was started all the way back in chapter 1, verses uh, 14 through 15, the gospel, or the good news of the kingdom. That Jesus is the coming king, and that he is going to establish his rule. And so he was declaring that and letting it be known. Most of chapter 4 has dealt with that. We're going to close out chapter 4 and then start into chapter 5 this morning. And in this section, we're going to see that Jesus proves his authority over things that are outside, or even... Uh, bigger than the biggest expectations. This one is not just you know one-offs, individuals, small things. We're going to see a massive, major proof of Jesus's authority. As a result of it, you will see in the witnesses of these events shock and awe at how is it that he is able to do what he does. We're going to read uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 520. Like I said, I realize that this is a longer section. Um, it's ultimately kind of going to divide into two episodes, to two things. And you're probably fairly familiar with them. They're, they're well known. Jesus is going to still the storm on the sea, and then Jesus is going to cast out demons um, as well. But we're going to read these and then dig into them and find out a few ways in which Jesus is truly the authority over everything. Starting off in verse 35. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with him, just as he was in the boat. And there were other boats with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind. And the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And they came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerizines. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him any more, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and gashing himself with stones. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. And he, For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entered him, entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about two thousand of them. And they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city <clears throat> and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described it to them, described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man, and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to depart their region. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The first story picks up right after what we looked at last week. So what was happening last week? What was the, the setting? What was the situation that was going on? Okay, he was teaching in parables. You can actually go back two weeks uh, to the very start of chapter 4, and it says, He began to teach again by the sea, and a very great multitude gathered to him. And he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, and it goes on to elaborate some of the parables that he was teaching. Now, we already saw that that was a continuous thing that he was constantly doing, but on one particular day, in that context, as all of that was happening, it gets towards evening, and he's done. He's done teaching, he's finished, and that's where we pick up this episode of what's happening. 
So on that day, now the day, we don't know exactly which day. He doesn't identify a specific day because this is what he's constantly always doing. But at the end of one of those days, um, he, had, he had been teaching, he gets done with one of those sessions and decides, okay, today I want to go to the other side. Now, where is the other side? Is anybody familiar with the, the region in that area? Okay, the other side of what, I guess, is the first question. Okay, the Sea of Galilee. All right, so if you recall from some of the maps we've looked at, or maybe in the back of your Bible you have a map, um, the Sea of Galilee, it's not a very large sea. Technically, it could be called a lake. It actually comes up quite a bit throughout Scripture uh, under different names at times, but it's a small sea that, depending on which direction you're going, would only take one to six hours to cross. Now, you can go north to south, and that's the longest direction, or you can go east to west, and, and it's you know, not a perfectly uh, shaped sea or lake. So there's a lot of different routes that they could take. But he has been teaching, and he decides he wants to go to the other side. So he wants to cross over. Now, ultimately, we're going to find out that he goes to the southeast portion of the sea. That's the area that he's going to end up being in. Um, and, but we don't know specifically where he launches from. He's been teaching throughout a region. Most likely, the place that he has kind of made his home base is in the upper, the, the northern, northwestern, make sure I get my, right, my directions right, northwestern side, and they're going to the southeastern side. So this could have been a little bit of a journey. We're not exactly sure where his launch point was, nor necessarily where the, the final destination was as much as he just wants to go to the other side. Now, why do you think that he would want to do that? He's peopled out. I, I think that that is a very reasonable option. And we're actually going to find out that, that it makes perfect sense. What does he do when he gets in the boat? He goes and takes a nap. So it's, it's entirely possible he is tired, which, which is amazing. This is Jesus, the God-man, well, he physically gets worn out. And so, potentially, he has spent the entire day uh, teaching, declaring, making it known, and he is peopled out, and he is ready for a break. And so he, sit, he sits down and says, let's go. Let's go to the other side. Entirely possible. Um, in fact, we're not actually told specifically why. He just says, uh, let's go to the other side. And so his disciples take him there. That's what they do. Um, it, it started off on verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them just as he was. Now, I, I found that one kind of interesting. Why does it make that statement? What, what is that talking about? What does that mean? Okay. He had been standing in the boat teaching Spent the whole day doing that. And I, I think that what Mark is emphasizing is this wasn't a planned event. They didn't go back and get supplies and gather everything. They were thinking, okay, this is just a normal trip. We're going to just go across to the other side. Not a big deal. They didn't go and get supplies. They didn't make preparations. Jesus didn't get back off the boat and then come back and get going. Yes, sir. There, there was a cushion. Well, I mean, does your boat have cushions in it? Okay, it has, it has a built-in seat. Uh, 
it's just the regular boat. It's, it's the normal boat ready for whatever they were going to do. They had made it ready for sailing because it's, it's kind of not necessarily up, pulled up onto the bank as much as right there, but just as he was. Um, I actually had one of the ladies from the uh, Friday morning Bible study ask me about this, and I, I wanted to kind of pass it along and make sure that, that we understood this point. The phrase itself is kind of odd, and it, it's just slipped in there. It's another of those details that kind of shows the, the um, eyewitness account of what's going on, that, that he's not just making stuff up. This is what people saw, and they reported to Matt, Mark as he was writing all of this. Uh, but the point here that Mark is making is that this wasn't a planned out journey, and they really didn't think much of it. You'll recall that several of the disciples were fishermen. They were used to being on this. In fact, about a third of them, perhaps, perhaps more, were made their living from the sea. So they were used to the Sea of Galilee. They knew what it was. Be just like us saying, hey, let's, let's make a run up to Bend. You jump in your car and you go. It's not that big of a deal. Now, we're going to find out that it does kind of become a little bit more significant than that. But this wasn't planned out. It wasn't large amounts of preparation. The point he's making is that Jesus decided he wanted to go, and the disciples made it happen. He'd been teaching from the boat, and it appears as if they just lifted the anchor and headed out. They didn't gather supplies, like I said. They didn't do anything. It's also indicative of the shortness of this journey. It wasn't a big deal for them to go. So, like I said, it may have been anywhere from an hour to six hours, depending on the direction that you cross, depending on the, how the winds blow, because they, they were... Um, sailing, you know, it wasn't powered boats like we have today, but it was not a huge major undertaking that they were heading for. They were just out for a short cruise. But we get to verse 37. There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, there's, there's a little detail at the end of verse 36 that I, I want you to take note of. There are other boats, and that's all it says. And I will admit, that's one of those where I, I kind of started digging, and I'm like, okay, so why are these other boats here? What's going on? I mean, Mark's recording it, and the, do, they, do they all die in the storm, or do they, do they turn back? What, what's, you know what Mark tells us? Nothing. <laughs> so, I don't know. Uh, Mark is the only one who records that there are other boats there. This same account is in Matthew and Luke, and Mark is the only one who mentions that there were other boats. We don't know how many, where they were going, what happened to them. That is the only mention of them, and other boats were with him. Yes, sir. Um, a good idea. We don't necessarily know what boats they had, um, Archaeologically, they have found boats that are large enough for about 15 people fairly easily and comfortably, so they could have fit all 12 disciples plus Jesus into one boat. Um, we don't necessarily know. And then after this, he only refers to one boat, one particular boat. So I don't know what the other boats are there for. Uh, I don't know what happens to them. I'm curious, just like I'm sure some of you are, but that is all that Mark tells us is that there were other boats. What we do find out, though, is that a fierce gale of wind, a, a great windstorm of wind, comes up. Now, 
storms are not that unusual on the Sea of Galilee. This is something that, that comes up and happens, and yet these guys, like I said, about a third of them were fishermen. They were used to being on the, the sea and experiencing things like this that come up suddenly, and so why would they be so scared? Why would this make such a big difference? Now, one thing that, that you need to notice, there's a word that's going to come up multiple times as we go through. In English, it's translated different ways. But Mark is going to use a word mega. It means mega. It means big, huge, massive. He's going to use that multiple times. And I'm going to point it out as we go through. This is the first one. It is a mega storm. It's not just a, a nice, calm little thing. This is something huge. And in classic form for, for Mark, he is going to describe this as intense, as dramatic, and he's going to let us know that, in fact, this is mega. Verse 37, There arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Sounds kind of scary. Where was Jesus during all of this? Asleep. Like I said, I, I think John might be spot on that uh, Jesus was just tired. And one of the reasons was he was tired of, of everything that was going on, and he needed a break. He did that periodically. Most of the time, when you see Jesus take a break, he goes off to pray by himself. And at this point, it seems that what he needed was a nap. And so he goes and he lays down. Says uh, he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Cushion, it's not something fancy or s specific. It's just he went back there and sat down like on a regular boat today. They've got built in seats. That's where he was. He laid down and went to sleep. But the disciples, they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The, the way that this is, is laid out, they are. Uh, very, very scared. They are in panic mode, which is interesting because, like I said, they're sailors. They know what to do. They know how to deal with this, and yet they think that they are about to die. This this boat, uh, I've read some things, you know, people were saying, well, you know, they probably overloaded it, and that's why. But again, they're sailors. They know what they're doing. They would be able to handle this. So why other than the fact that this is a mega storm, that this is a massive storm. This thing is huge. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I want to take a side note right there and ask you a question. Have you ever asked that or something like that of Jesus? You get into something, something external to you, something that's not your fault, and you ask, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you, don't you take care of me? Why, why aren't you helping me? Well, do you think that Jesus cared about his disciples? Of course he did. Uh, he's going to address this question momentarily. We'll, we'll take a look at it when we get to that. But what does Jesus do? What, what does it say that he does? He gets up, and he rebukes the wind, and he addresses the waves and says, Hush, be still. And what happens? Immediately. This is another of those megas. 
Now, in, in English, it's recorded as uh, it became perfectly calm. The, the word that Mark uses here is the same one that he used to say that this is a really, really big storm. He now uses to say this is a really, really big calm. It is mega calm. So the drastic change. Now, what could possibly be going on here? Well, there are a lot of Old Testament references that are made and, and alluded to at different times. And one that I want to point out is Psalm 89, uh, particularly verse 9. Hold your place here in Mark, but let's, let's take a look at Psalm 89, verse 9. In Psalm 89, it is declaring the greatness of God. It's declaring His authority, His control over all creation. And in Psalm 89, verse 9, it says, Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When the waves rise, thou dost still them. Psalm 104 is another good example. It declares God's creative power and his ability, his authority over the wind and the sea, the mountains and the waters. Psalm 104 is a, is a fascinating, it's a great psalm to recognize how strong and powerful and mighty God is. Who created everything? God, right? All the way back at the beginning of Genesis, we find that with his word, God was able to speak and make the world, the heavens. And, and with his voice, with those words that he says, he shapes and molds everything into what he wants it to be. And here we have Jesus, who moments before was laying asleep, having taught all day long, probably tired, exhausted, ready for his nap. His disciples wake him up in a panic because this storm is, is massive and huge. And Jesus stands up, says to the uh, waves, hush, be still. And immediately it does that. So what is going on? Jesus, with a word, stands up and tells the wind to stop blowing and the waves to stop crashing. And they did exactly that. Not only is it calm, it is a great calm. Same idea as the storm was great, now the calm is great. And then he turns to his disciples and he asks them a question. He said to them, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? These disciples had had been with him, had followed him, had seen his authority that we just described in so many different ways and so many different places. And yet even still, they didn't fully understand. They didn't comprehend. And we're going to see that come up multiple times. That happens a lot. They don't always get it. In fact, it seems with their, their question that they're almost accusing Jesus and saying, you know, hey, while we're risking our lives out here, you're just sawing logs back there. Don't you care about us? They're, they're accusing him and getting after him like you should be better than this. There are going to be times coming up in which Peter even just flat out rebukes him and, and tells him, no, you're not allowed to do and you're not allowed to, you know, all of this stuff. And yet Jesus asks them a simple question. Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? What do the, what's the, the disciples' reaction then after that? What does it say in verse 41? 
they became very much afraid. Now, he, he asks them, why are you so timid? Which is a, a form of word dealing with fear, being afraid, not uh, almost to the, to the idea of being a coward or cowardly. Why, why are you that way? Their response is to become mega afraid, to become very, very much afraid. Now, this is a different kind of fear, though. This is um, the same idea as being terrified or in awe or in amazement. So not, not the same type of fear going on here. They are in awe of him. And I think that they ask the key question. The question that has to be answered. The, the question that I mentioned Jesus probably does take this trip in order to rest. But I suspect Jesus doesn't really do a lot of things for no, no reason. I, I wonder if it's possible that bringing up this very question was part of why he makes this trip. It's definitely why Mark records this trip. The, the disciples ask a question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I just pointed you to a couple of Psalms. Do you think you know the answer to their question? Who is this? It's God himself. Mark is making it abundantly clear that this is God, that Jesus is God. Now, we, we have a tendency to think of certain things that each of the, the Gospels emphasizes. And, and I think that that's reasonable. We look at Matthew as emphasizing Jesus as king. We look at Luke as emphasizing that Jesus is a man. We look at, at the Gospel of John as emphasizing that Jesus is God himself. And that, that's true, that's reasonable. We look at Mark as emphasizing that Jesus is a servant, but it's not missing the point that Jesus is God himself. And that's huge. That's massive. And that is the point that we need to understand from this, that he is able even to control the, the wind and the waves and the storms and, and everything that is outside. These, these disciples, they were terrified by it. So let me ask you, are there things in life that are outside of us, that are terrifying, that maybe even make us start to ask that question, Jesus, don't you care? I would kind of ask you back that same question, why are you so timid? Have you no faith? Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. God has control over the wind and the waves and the seas and the storms and all of that. Now we come to the second of these episodes, and we see another event. Uh, everything calms down. They finish out their journey. Chapter 5 says they came to the other side of the sea. So they got to their destination. They got to where they were going, particularly the country of the Gerizines. Now, there are a couple of different locations that come up, and uh, my pronunciation is not always great on them. I want to emphasize that there are, there are two locations, at least when I'm reading through, and just fumbling through words that I get confused. Gennesaret and Gadarenes. Those are two completely different locations. So when you're reading through, I want to encourage you, make sure that you check out on the map or something and identify where you're dealing with. Because one is on the left side up high, and the other is on the right side down low on, as you're looking at a regular map. This is the one that's in the southeast corner area. And it's a region. 
There is a particular town that's several miles from the ocean or from the sea, but this is dealing with that country or that region, that area um, that he has gotten to. One thing to be aware of, this is not a Jewish area. This is actually the Gentile area. You, you recall that the sea, there's a lot of different towns and areas around it. The Jews are primarily on the north and the uh, west side, and this area to the southeast is actually a Gentile area. And so it, it's a little odd, it's a little unusual that Jesus would be going to that area. Um, as we head into this episode, though, I want you to notice there are a lot of things that are different. We're going to come across a, a different place that he's going to. We're going to see a different people that he deals with, a different problem that comes up, a different power that he addresses, a different process in which he addresses it, and then a different postscript, just because I wanted to come up with one more P. What happens afterwards is different. And so we're going to go through this episode, and it's really different than the things that we've seen before of what, what was going on with Jesus. And again, I think that Mark is making a significant major point that we need to catch uh, about who Jesus is and what's going on. I mentioned, first of all, the place. They arrive in the country or this region, and it is not populated by Jews. Now, there may have been some Jews in the area, but it is primarily a Gentile area, which means he's dealing with a different people as well. Up to this point, we've seen him mainly in the Jewish areas dealing with Jews, dealing with the religious leaders initially, and then with the sinners and tax collectors who were still Jews, but weren't necessarily practicing and doing what God expected of them. They weren't living a very religious life, but they were still Jews. Well, now he is in a different place with a different people than what Mark has dealt with so far. Immediately upon his arrival, soon as he lands, soon as he gets out of the boat, what happens? A man, go ahead. A man runs up to him, just rushes up to him. Now, again, Mark doesn't make the, the point, but I think, I suspect that this interaction is why, part of why Jesus wanted to make this trip, why he wanted to come across and have this interaction. Mark is definitely recording this as a significant major thing that occurs. And so this, this man, as soon as, he, as soon as Jesus gets out of the boat, immediately the man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, comes running up to him. Now, how is this guy described? As having an unclean spirit. What, what about the next several verses? Okay, he lives among the tombs. It means he's probably not washed for a while. He's, he's strong. He's crazy. No one can bind him. This does not seem like the kind of guy that you want running at you. I'm just saying. Now, um, I, I have heard of individuals that, that get hyped up on different chemicals and, and things of that nature and their, their strength and their power and their inability to be controlled and things like that. And yet, those eventually kind of dissipate and go away. This guy, it gives the impression this has been a long time happening. They've tried to bind him with chains and with fetters. The, the idea is, is, is like uh, things on his legs so that he can't run and, and around his hands so that he can't move and, and do things. And they have all been broken. He, he is very, very strong. He is very, very crazy. And he comes 
running up. This seems to be quite the um, challenging situation. Now, I want to mention, we're, we're not going to turn to it, uh, but in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 through 4, there seem to be a lot of parallels with this man. The way that he's described and the way that uh, rebellious Israel is described um, seems to be a lot, of, a lot of parallels and similarities. I don't know if that's necessary that Mark is saying, hey, this is fulfillment of something like that, or just the fact that there's, there's these similarities. Um, but it is interesting that a wayward nation of Israel is described in some of these similar ways, and yet this is a Gentile individual in a foreign land. Uh, here in Mark, it says that the man had an unclean spirit, that he lived among the tombs, that he was unable to be bound, that he broke chains, that he broke shackles, and that he was constantly crying out and hurting himself with stones, cutting himself. This is who he is. So he's, he's bloody, he's scary, probably dirty, and he comes running up. Now, if you saw something like that, what would your reaction be? Ah! Yeah, I agree. To be scared. Mark, again, is setting up this massive challenge. How is Jesus going to be able to deal with this? We know that this guy, no one can handle him. Groups of people cannot handle him. Chains cannot handle him. Nothing can handle this guy. So what in the world could Jesus possibly do? This is a big problem. This is a major issue. If I were a disciple, I would be very scared. Now, I, I wonder which one would be more unnerving, the storm that they just dealt with or this crazy man running up at them. And I'm not sure. I, I kind of pondered on that a little bit, trying to, trying to decide, now, which one would be more disturbing? Both. That would have been, would have been a terrifying day. And they've, they've been with Jesus. They've gone through many of the things that he's gone through. They know what's happening. I expect that they would be scared. Well, this man comes running up to Jesus, falls down before him. Notice there is no fight. There is no argument. Uh, it doesn't look like he bows in worship, but that he bows in defeat. That he recognizes Jesus is in complete authority over him. The, the man comes running up, uh, seeing Jesus from a distance, verse 6, he ran up and bowed down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. This is a, a fascinating phrasing that he uses. He, he, being filled with a demon, being controlled by Satan and his forces, runs up and immediately bows down, recognizing who Jesus is proclaiming that he is the son of the most high God. There's no question. There's no argument. This, it, a lot of people get this, this mindset of, you know, Jesus and Satan, they're equals, and they're, they're engaged in this epic battle, and, you know, you never know which way is it going to go, who's going to be in charge, what's going to happen. From the get-go, this guy knows he is defeated. He bows down and he begs. That's, that's what this idea of imploring is. And that's another word that you're going to see come up several times. They beg. They're asking. They're making this request. Specifically, he says um, in his request, I implore you by God, do not 
torment me. Now that idea of torment is the idea of torture. So he, he doesn't want to be tortured. That's what he's asking for. Now, this, this question, this phrasing that he uses is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 1, verse 24. What business do you have with me? It's almost a, a question of leave me alone. You, you and I have nothing to deal with. This, this man who is possessed by demons is away in the Gentile area, completely separated, has no connection. So it, it's almost a question of, Jesus, what are you doing over here? Why are you bothering me? Don't torment me. Don't torture me. Leave me alone. And yet he does so from his knees, bowed down, recognizing. Now, <clears throat> we know that ultimately all of the demons will be cast into the lake of fire. We know what the end result is. At this point, though, it, it appears that he is asking for a delay in the sentence, asking that Jesus not cast him out. And we're going we're gonna to see a couple more um, requests that are made along the way. Jesus, though, has already commanded him out. We see that in verse 8. And so again, in, in Mark's style, he adds the emphasis. He's drawing our attention to this, this crazy man who comes running up, who bows down and is begging. And then he, he includes verse 8 that says, Jesus had been saying to him. So Jesus had already given him the command, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, I mentioned that, that we have a different people, a different place, a big problem. And uh, we're about to see a different process that Jesus uses, as well as a, a very serious power that he's addressing. This process is the fact that Jesus starts talking to him and interacting with this, this man. He asks him, what is his name? In verse 9, and he, the, the demon-possessed man, responds, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, what is a legion? Anybody know? Okay, it's many. 6,280 men. Now, that, that would be, so it, it would be like us saying a division. It's a military term for a large group, okay? It, it's, that would be normally, you know, the, the strict by the book number. It's really a range. It can mean a, a wide amount. You start studying military history in a division or um, a battalion, something like that, brigade level, would be an, a various number, but it's in the thousands. This isn't just a small group. It's emphasizing the fact that this is in the thousands of people. I think that it also is giving us a reference to the kingdom idea in the previous chapter. This is a military-based a military number. It's a military-based phrase. And so what Mark is doing is letting us know that this is pitting the kingdom of Satan against the kingdom of Jesus. And, and who's going to win this battle? How is this, this conflict going to happen? We already saw allusions to that back in chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And so what is Jesus going to do? Well, the simple fact is that he engages in a dialogue. Like I said, this is a different process than he has used before. Now, the demon, or the demons, make three requests. Uh, and I think I mentioned that in the pre-study guide. But what, what are the, the three requests that are made as you read through this? Did anybody notice what those are? What, what you got, Lizka? 
Don't torture, okay, only one from, from you at a time. Don't torture us, okay? That's the first one. That's what we already saw. What's number two? Don't cast us out of the region or the country of the area, okay? And what's number three? Send us into the pigs. Is that what you were going to say? All right, send us into the pigs. Now, he, he runs up, bows down, is already defeated, and yet he makes these requests. And Jesus responds to him by asking, what is your name? He says, we are legion, or my name is legion, for we are many. And then uh, they, they ask a question. Send us into the swine that we may enter them. Now, here's the, here's the question. Who's in charge right now in this episode? Jesus. How do we know that? Because the man bowed before him. The man made these requests of him. This is not a question as to, okay, who's going to win? Who's going to lose? From the get-go, Mark is letting us know Jesus is in charge. He is the authority in this. Verse 13, he gave them permission. He allowed it. Even this idea of them coming out of the man and going into the, the pigs, the swine, that is under Jesus's authority. That's under his control. And he gave them the permission to do that. I think that we've seen this huge power presented. This man is scary. He's terrifying. He has the ability to beat people up. In the, the account recorded in Matthew, we find that people don't even go that way anymore because of fear of this guy. He has torn asunder all kinds of chains and fetters. And yet, when Jesus interacts with him, he is able to easily cast him out. I say easily because, I mean, we're dealing with demons here. And yet, we are shown very, very clearly that Jesus is in charge. Now, all three of those requests seem kind of odd that they ask. It, it appears that knowing that they are already defeated, that they are trying to at least make the most of the situation, that that's what's going on. Uh, for some reason, Jesus accepts their suggestion. Why? I'm not sure. I, I think that that's a, a good question. He, he doesn't fully explain it. Um, is it mercy on his part? Is it simply delaying the, the inevitable? Is, were they saying, please don't cast us into the abyss now. Let us continue what we're doing. There's a lot about demons and, and angels and the spirit realm that is not fully explained. And so I don't want to read into this any more than what's there. I recognize that that, that can be challenging. Why are they asking these things? What, what specifically do they want and not want and all of that? But it seems that Jesus is willing to acquiesce to this request. Yes, ma'am. It's, it's coming from the man because they have possessed him. Yes. Yes. The, the demons are in control. And it, it's not just one or two. It's thousands are controlling this man. And they use his voice then to ask these questions, to make these requests. That, yeah, that's what's going on there. Yep. Was there another question over here? 
Okay, <clears throat> so um, they, have, they have made this request, and it, it's interesting that Jesus acquiesces to it, that he allows them this, that, that they have asked, but he does. And the result is that about 2,000 pigs run off the cliff and drown. The, again, that emphasizes, lets us know that this is a large number of demons at play and that Jesus has complete authority over them. Um, obviously, there are some questions in that, you know, why, why pigs? Why do they want to go into the pigs? What's, what's going on with that? Um, what happened to the demons afterwards? Like, they, they run the pigs into the water, and then what happens to them? Where do they go? Again, there's a lot of things about the spirit realm that we don't know that God doesn't record for us, and that's okay. I don't, I don't have the answers. I don't know for sure, but I know the one who does. I know the one who has the authority to do this, to allow and to disallow, to uh, control all of these things. There's a vast number of, of demons at play in this. Uh, one thing that I do want to point out that is, is very intriguing, the comparative value that's presented here. 2,000 pigs would have been a, a small fortune. And yet, what was more important? This one man, this individual. And so Jesus rescues this guy, and the, the pigs, not a big deal. Comparatively. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't care about pigs, but comparatively, the focus is on this man. The point that Mark is emphasizing is Jesus' authority, even over an army of demons. Jesus has authority. So then I mentioned that there's a postscript. What happens next? What happens after this? Well, as you can imagine, the herdsmen, the ones who are keeping the pigs, they're probably freaked out. They're a little bit worried, like what is going on? And they run off and they let it be known throughout the region, in the cities and throughout the country, what is going on. They flee and report these events far and wide. Now, we don't know how long Jesus and the disciples stayed there, how long they hung out, but at least long enough for the herdsmen to go spread the word and then come back and explain what was going on. What reaction then do the people of the land have? Go, 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 go. They, they want him out of, the, out of the area. Why? I think that they... Rec- do what? I think that they recognize that this is something they don't understand. It's beyond their control. It's beyond their ability. They don't get it, and they want him gone. They want him to leave. Um, that's, that's all that we're told. It causes a terror among the people, and they beg Jesus to leave. And so Jesus gets into the boat. Now, obviously, he could have done whatever he wanted. He has just proven his authority, but he gets into the boat, and he's getting ready to leave. And what happens next? Well, the man comes up and begs him. It's that same idea of imploring. Begs him. The man wants to go with Jesus. What does Jesus say? Does he allow it or not? No, he doesn't. And this, this is one of those things that is completely different than what we've seen before happening. In the past, each time we see Jesus tell people, don't spread the word, don't say anything, keep it quiet, keep it hushed. Well, here, what does Jesus tell him to do? Verse 19, go home, tell your people what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. A little bit of a side note. How many of you find it difficult or challenging to share the gospel, to witness to people, to, to let it be known? 
pretty sure most, most hands ought to go up most of the time. What is it that Jesus tells him to do? Tell what happened to you. Tell your own story, your own testimony. That's, that's the, the word that we would use today. Share your testimony. You don't have to have all the theological terms and ideas. You don't have to have a full explanation of how it all fits together and works. Just tell the story. Tell your testimony. And that's what he says. Go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Now, why did Jesus not let him go with them? I don't know. He has crowds who follow him. And so it's, it's not like he doesn't want people around. He has his, his 12 disciples that he specifically selected, but then there's these huge multitudes that are constantly going everywhere with him. And yet he tells this man, no, don't, don't follow me. It doesn't specifically say, but I, I think we get an inclination of it in the next verse. And what happens? It says, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The man goes out. Decapolis is, I, I mentioned that he's in the region of uh, the Gadarenes. Decapolis, it means 10 cities. It was a region that varied at times up to maybe 18 cities, but it's that large region. So not just the local area, but that whole region now hears about what great things the Lord has done for this man and how he had mercy on him. We're actually going to come back to this area in a couple of chapters, chapter 7 and 8. We're going to find Jesus back in this area. So I suspect, again, I don't, I don't know it doesn't say this, but I suspect that Jesus wants him to stay there to lay the groundwork and get things ready for when Jesus is going to return to this area. The man goes, not only does he tell his own people, but he proclaims throughout all of Decapolis. The result was... The people were amazed. Now, we're not told that they all get saved, that they all believe in Jesus, anything like that. But they are in awe. Why are they in awe? What reason would they have? Now, I mentioned at the very beginning that we're going to be dealing with a couple of storms. That, you know, there are things internal and external that that in today's society we would call storms. Jesus has just proven his power his authority, over the things that are outside, the, the raging storms of the sea. And this is a major, major thing. And then this conflict, this crazy that this individual has been dealing with. And this is a major confrontation, a major interaction. And Jesus has authority over all of it. If you get nothing else from this section, I want you to understand Mark is making it abundantly clear that Jesus is God. He is the king. He is the authority. He is the one who is in charge. The only so what then is what are you going to do with that? We should all be amazed. But just because we're amazed doesn't mean that we trust him, that we follow him, that we obey him, that we do what he tells us to do. Many of these people in Decapolis... They didn't trust him, but they were in awe. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess who Jesus is. We should do so willingly right now. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, Lord, help us to stand in awe of you. You are amazing. 
You are marvelous. You are powerful. You are the authority. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had going through your word and seeing just two of the many examples in which you show who you are, that you declare who Jesus is. Lord, help us to trust him. Help us to bow the knee willingly right now. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.